friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're spoon-feeding you the latest research. And let's take a quick peek ahead at everything that we covered this week. First off, we had everyone has a price. We're as easily bought as anyone else. Then TXA for epistaxis, more RCT data to help show us the way. After that, a journal feed point counterpoint on LPs for subarachnoid hemorrhage after a negative CT, and then finishing off with tubes are pretty rigid already. Do you really need that stylet? This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the luxurious Aaron Lacey, Graham Van Shake, Sam Parnell, Rebecca White, and Clay Smith. So the first article from this week was titled, Are Financial Payments from the Pharmaceutical Industry Associated with Physician Prescribing? A Systematic Review Out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Now, there's a cynical point of view out there that gift-giving, well, maybe I won't explain it. I'll let Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory explain it. You bought me a present? Uh-huh. Well, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> I don't know, because it's Christmas? Oh, Penny. I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift-giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. Uh, honey, it's okay. You don't have to give me anything in return. Of course I do. The essence of the custom is that I now have to go out and purchase for you a gift of commensurate value and representing the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift you've given me. Have you ever given a present? Have you ever received a present? It feels good. It makes you want to make the other person happy, too. Both parties are engaged in a kind of a societal contract in which they are expected to reciprocate. Surely, this doesn't apply to just little trinkets and trifles that we receive as doctors, does it? Oh, how wrong you'd be if you thought that. This study was a meta-analysis of 36 studies encompassing 101 different analyses of the impact of industry, i.e. big pharma, big bad pharma, on the payments to doctors and how that affects prescribing behaviors. 36 studies were found, 30 of them found a positive association between payments and prescribing drugs, and 6 had mixed results but still some positive association. Payments led to more prescribing of whatever drug the payments were for. They increased overall drug costs, and there was less use of generics found in most of the studies. Now, of course, the kinds of studies that look at this sort of thing aren't going to be the ones that can prove causality. But I think that the associations are strong enough to warrant that many institutions have actually put an all-out ban on any of their physicians from accepting anything of monetary value from drug reps. Hugs are free, though. So, not directly proven to be causal, but there's even a temporal relationship between being paid and increasing drug prescriptions, as well as a dose response. More money, more prescribing. Most of the payments were in the form of food, drinks, consulting fees, or honoraria. This might all seem like a one-way street, but it's actually really hard to parse out who's receiving money and thus prescribing more, and who's prescribing a lot and thus gets that behavior reinforced by receiving payments. In real life, it's probably both of these things that are happening. Gone are the days of ethically getting free stuff from drug reps, but that's probably the best thing for everybody. Your brain is hardwired to want to give back, so you simply can't be receiving gifts from anybody. Instead, you must base all of your medication decisions on what's absolutely best for the patient and not anyone's pockets. In a spoonful, financial payments from pharmaceutical companies to doctors influences their prescribing habits. 
Then the second article, the use of transoxemic acid to reduce the need for nasal packing in epistaxis, the NOPAC randomized controlled trial out of the annals of emergency medicine. Nosebleeds. You know, when I got into emergency medicine residency, a friend of mine, an ENT resident, texted me to ask what I got into and where. I told her that I was going to be an ER doctor, and her next response, instead of texting me, well, anything at all really, she just sent me the PDF version of the National Epistaxis Guidelines, so that she would be certain that I only consulted her in ENT when it was absolutely necessary. Anyways, needless to say, nosebleeds are common and can be difficult to treat. After you pinch that nose for a good 15 to 20 minutes without peeking, then you're getting closer and closer to having to pack the nose. Packing is uncomfortable for patients. It'd be nice if we had a quick, cheap, painless way to stop that bleeding. TXA would honestly be just that, if it worked, of course. The evidence is iffy, and it's not always super reliable, so let's take a look at a recent double-blinded multi-center RCT for some quality evidence. All the patients were enrolled after 10 minutes of nasal pressure, followed by a topical vasoconstrictor. They were still bleeding, they entered this trial. About 250 patients were randomized to receive TXA on a cotton wool dental roll, and another 250 patients were randomized to have sterile water on a dental roll. The primary outcome was the need for nasal packing, and these authors found that there was no difference between the TXA group or the placebo group, both being packed 44 and 41% of the time, respectively. So, unfortunately, TXA looks like it's losing its reputation as the wonder drug that everybody had such high hopes for. We thought it would be the miracle to save us all in trauma, TBIs, GI bleeds, postpartum hemorrhage, many, many more. Most of the trials for all of these indications have gotten mixed results. In the case of epistaxis, though, the risks are very low and it's not an expensive drug. There have been some positive studies in the past. So if you're a believer, then the evidence seems to show that it doesn't really hurt to try, but frankly, it isn't likely to help, and you should maybe just move on to packing. In a spoonful, in a multi-center double-blinded RCT on topical TXA to stop epistaxis, TXA did not outperform placebo. And now we have a journal feed point counterpoint, where we have two of our authors covering articles arguing different conclusions from the literature. Let's start with the point. Lumbar puncture is necessary for ruling out atraumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage six hours after symptom onset out of the annals of emergency medicine. Subarachnoid hemorrhages are kind of the headache. But headaches in general are a common presentation to the emergency department, so it can be difficult to know when to investigate and when to stop investigating. Missing a subarachnoid hemorrhage is associated with significant morbidity and mortality, so a significant number of doctors are going to be really keen to do all they can to properly rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this usually means an LP. So our first point here is going to be the outlook that's more kind of pro-LP after a negative CT scan for a subarachnoid hemorrhage to really round off your evaluation. So it's fairly well established that a CT done within six hours of onset of a subarachnoid hemorrhage has excellent sensitivity, up to 100%. But outside that six hour range, then the sensitivity seems to fall to about 86% from a prospective cohort study of 3,300 patients. And from meta-analysis data, the CT done after six hours seems to have a negative likelihood ratio of 0.07. It's pretty low, but it's not, you know, zero. But if you add an LP, then the sensitivity rose to 100%, no matter how much time had elapsed. LPs aren't completely benign. 
They have some risks, they're not comfortable, and the rate of bloody taps does a number on the specificity of this test. They do offer an extra source of information, however, allowing you to evaluate other causes of headache that leave their trace in CSF. So let's use a few numbers to try to drive our point home. Patients can be at low, medium, or high risk for subarachnoid hemorrhages. Using meta-analysis data, we can provide probabilities for each of these risk groups. They are 4.8% at risk for low risk, 7.5% at risk for medium, and almost 35% at risk for high. If the CT was done after six hours, then the negative likelihood ratio, like we said, is 0.07. So that will change our probabilities of having a subarachnoid hemorrhage to 0.3, 0.6, and 2.3. The high risk coming in at 2.3% chance of having a subarachnoid hemorrhage after that negative CT that's a higher number than the calculated threshold of 1.6% in terms of when we should do the LP. They calculated this threshold using a Pockers formula, which takes into account the characteristics of the tests and the risk of the disease. Hey guys, uh, future Nick here. Uh, so it turns out the original article actually had a few mistakes in it. And so some of the numbers that I just said are incorrect. Luckily, all the conclusions that you can draw for them are actually all the same. So, you know, uh, don't sweat the little stuff. Anyways, back to uh, past Nick. So all of this would lead you to believe that certainly high-risk patients need an LP, and in low- and medium-risk patients, perhaps not. In a spoonful, from the available evidence, these authors conclude that in patients at high risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage who have a negative CT that was done after six hours from onset, doing an LP is worth the risk. In low and intermediate risk patients, shared decision making is probably your best choice. Lumbar puncture should not be routinely performed for subarachnoid hemorrhage after a negative head CT out of the annals of emergency medicine. Now, as our counterpoint, more in favor of forgoing the LP after a negative CT, even if the scan was done after six hours from onset. So a negative likelihood ratio of 0.07 for that scan is actually quite good. And for the vast majority of patients, this should be sufficient for ruling out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. There are factors that need to be considered though that would decrease the sensitivity of your CT scan though. And these should always be taken into account. These are going to include things like old scanners, anything before third generation CT scanners, CT slices more than 5mm, any artifacts be it motion or metal related, inexperienced radiologists, and a low hematocrit. We're talking something less than about 30%. But if these factors aren't there, then CT is a pretty darn good test, and it's getting better. These authors also stress the imperfections of the LP as a test. No parameters from the LP have sensitivities or specificities on their own greater than 90% to diagnose subarachnoid hemorrhage. And traumatic taps occur in 10 to 30% of patients. Also, LPs are time and resource intensive to perform. There's also the rare risk of hematomas and infections. So in the end, these authors actually draw similar conclusions. LPs should not be done routinely after a negative CT. But in high-risk patients, patients who might have meningitis or encephalitis, or if there are factors that may have decreased the performance of your CT scan, then LPs should be considered. Shared decision-making can also be engaged in to consider other methods of imaging, including a CTA or an MRI in select high-risk groups. In a spoonful, when evaluating a patient for subarachnoid hemorrhage, the routine use of LP after a negative CT scan, even if it was done after six hours of onset, should not be done. 
In high-risk patients, it should be considered, however, but so should the use of other imaging options. And then our last article, Article 5, titled The Effect of the Use of Endotracheal Tube and Stylet versus Endotracheal Tube Alone in First Attempt Intubation Success, a Multicenter Randomized Clinical Trial in 999 Patients, out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. It's pretty much become standard practice to use a stylet when intubating, and this comes with advantages. It's more rigid, you can pre-shape it to suit how you're intubating, and all this helps you get the tube through the cords. Stylets aren't completely benign though, they have been reported to cause cases of tracheal or esophageal perforations, and it's also more waste. They're typically single use and we already create a lot of waste at the hospital. So how much are they actually improving first pass success? If it's not much, is it worth the risks? This study was able to include just under a thousand patients from 32 ICUs all across France for an RCT. These patients were randomly assigned to either ET tube plus dilet or ET tube alone for the initial intubation attempt using direct laryngoscopy. Using a stylet gave a significantly higher first pass success rate, 78% compared with 72% when the ET tube was just used alone. All of this gives a number needed to treat of 15, not too shabby. But the rates of complications and serious adverse events were not significantly different between the two groups. Hard to say if this difference could be attributed to just working with something you're not used to using. The complication rates were also similar, but we know that higher first-pass success rates is indeed well correlated with it being a safer intubation. So I'd say it's probably best to keep the stylet. It might be worth repeating this study in the ED, however, but honestly, it was done in the ICU, so they're critically ill patients. The generalizability is probably pretty good. In a spoonful, first-pass intubation success rates in ICU patients were higher if a stylet was used compared to just an ET tube. Complication rates were similar between the groups. And that brings us to the end. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything that we learned today. Doctors love the Latin language. We like to name things with Latin roots. But I can tell you that pharma companies also know Latin, particularly quid pro quo. Since them giving gifts to physicians changes their prescribing behaviors in ways that favor more money and not necessarily better care. Second, strong evidence against the use of TXA for epistaxis, where TXA didn't outperform placebo in a multicenter randomized double-blinded trial. Third, from our point-counterpoint, we had largely similar conclusions. LPs should not be routine in your subarachnoid hemorrhage workup. But if the CT was done after 6 hours from onset and is negative, then if the patient is really at high risk, you should still be considering that LP. And then fifth, from the last article, it's kind of an extra step and it requires an extra set of hands, but using a stylet in your AT tube seems to increase first-pass intubation success, so it's probably worth it. Now then, you've earned them, and we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get all of these same spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>